I'm going. I'm going. I'm going into airplane mode. Okay. <clears throat> now, which one am I reading here? The top one or the bottom one? May 1997. Somewhere over Asia. What can I get you, Mr. Koshny? The young businessman settles back in his Challenger private jet. Allow me to recline the seat for you. The plush, plump, calfskin seat caresses his buttocks. There you go, sir. That soft, cream-colored leather, it smells so good. Can I offer you the Dome Perignon 1962? The champagne. Or the crew, 1975. It's exquisite. Just don't spill it on that leather, okay? Yes, it's a wonderful vintage. Oysters. And the hors d'oeuvres. Or beluga caviar. Ooh, ooh, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Cogeny. Man, this is the way to travel. Flying commercial? That's for schmucks. Okay, the itinerary. Egypt. Good morning, sir. Hungary. Romania. Hello again, sir. Mongolia. Japan. Welcome back on board, sir. Uzbekistan. The local time is 9 p.m. And, lest we forget, Azerbaijan. Don't forget that oil. He's not yet 34, but Victor Kojani is killing it. Yes, Mr. Burke? Now, Victor has a friend on board. And it looks like he's taking him for a ride in every way. Welcome to Russia, gentlemen. Touching down in Moscow, they pick up a couple of uh, surprise guests. Two women. Welcome on board, man. So, okay, who is that fella on the plane with Victor, his new pal? Rick Burke of the luxury handbag company Dunienberg. And as I once heard some wise guys say, there's a lot of money in handbags. Another blini? And what about those two women? (laughs) Who are they? Well, here's what the U.S. attorney would later write to Victor's lawyer. And I'm assuming you're going to have an act to read this? The government will offer a trial evidence that during the defendant Frederick Burke's trip with co-conspirator Victor Kozhny, Kozhny and Burke obtained the services of two prostitutes in Moscow, Russia, who were transported to, among other places, Baku, Azerbaijan, before being returned to Russia. This evidence will be offered for the purpose of showing the background of the conspiracy. Conspiracy, huh? So why does this guy Rick Burke matter? Just a little turbulence. Because on that day of reckoning, which will come... Probably best to fasten your seatbelt. When the party's over and there's no more champagne and no more hors d'oeuvres and no more alleged prostitutes, the only way is down. And as the engines fail and the wings fall off and the plane falls out of the sky, it's not Victor who'll be left without a parachute. When Victor's grand plan crashes and burns, yep, it's Rick Burke. He's the fall guy. Oh, by the way, all all this plane crash stuff... 
Keep your hair on. It's just a metaphor. This is the Pirate of Prague, an Apple original podcast produced by Blanchard House. I'm Joe Nocera. Chapter 2. The Best Student Harvard Ever Had? To understand a guy like Victor, we have to go back. Way back. You see, Victor has a history. And a good place to start is 1980, when Victor's fleeing Czechoslovakia. Remember, In those days, you couldn't just book a plane ticket and leave. You could only leave with permission. And if you couldn't get that permission, you had to use your initiative, which is not something Victor lacked. He had managed to escape as a member of the Czech junior handball team. He was a 17-year-old handball player on a trip to France. Was it France? I seem to remember a flight through Austria. Or had he... uh, Defected to the West on a trip to Germany. Ah, okay, I'm getting the picture now. But how did he get there? Wherever there was. There are those who said he jumped out of a train. He tunneled his way out. He floated over the border in a hot air balloon. His story was unbelievable. Unbelievable. After arriving in Germany... Papers, please. Aha, so it was Germany. He was approached by the Czech secret police. Or maybe it was the KGB. Okay, so, Peter, which of these fantastical stories is actually true? Well, Joe, to be honest, we do not exactly know. Ah, so Victor-like. Is there anything he wouldn't do? I would not put anything past him, but he clearly made it to the West somehow. Because what we do know for sure is that by 1982, Victor was in Munich, in what was then West Germany. And there's one night in particular that we know about. The greatest thing that came from... Victor's just 18. He's sitting in a lecture hall at a physics talk. Victor's into physics? That's uh, not really how you get rich, is it? No, there's not a bunch of money in it. But the thing is, it is not about the physics tonight because Victor has spotted an opportunity, and it's a big one. Now, that sounds like Victor. So this lecture, it's being given by a fellow named Marlon Scully. He is a um, big-time theoretical physicist, and at the time... He was a distinguished professor from the University of New Mexico. Exactly right. 
thank you, Professor Scully, for a fascinating lecture. Okay, so the lecture's over. The students are drifting out. But not Victor. A kid came up, six feet plus, red hair, big grin. Ah, yes, there's that sensational smile again. He said, look, I'd really like to talk to you about my research. Here's my stuff. Victor waves a notebook in the professor's face. He says he's a physics whiz. And the cherry on the cake? He's on the run from communism. He showed me a stack of calculations. I thumbed through it, and it looked realistic. The right tone of mathematical rigor. Hmm. Anyway, this fellow Victor may be young, but to the professor, he's convincing. He likes this kid, and he makes him an offer. So I said, well, look, why don't you come to the University of New Mexico and uh, join us there? The eminent professor has fallen for Victor's charms. But he's not thinking Victor will actually take him up on the offer. Then again, he doesn't know Victor very well. The next thing I knew, he showed up at my door. I didn't really expect that he would be there that fast. He just simply showed up. The kid had chutzpah. You can say that again. So I was, of course, a little surprised. The professor had bought Victor's story, hook, line, and sinker. And what's he going to do? He's here. He doesn't have any money, as far as I could tell. And uh, I didn't want to just leave him wandering the streets of Albuquerque. And can you blame him? This is a professor with a heart of gold. And this was a kid in need. Stray cat. He was a refugee from Czechoslovakia. Nobody needs to say anything more. He offers Victor a room in his house, just for a few days, a few weeks tops, while he finds his footing. And then another generous invitation to the family ranch over the mountains outside of Santa Fe. My family's out there, my boys. Why don't you come out and spend the weekend with us? It's dirt under the fingernails, good American farm labor. Buck hay, brand calves, work with us and uh, treat you like my own sons. And I thought that he would really love it since he would come from a communist country. Communists are people who emphasize the work ethic, right? Uh, wrong. At least not in this case. Saturday morning, we got up early. I told him, jump in the truck. We pull up the first barbed wire gate. And I said, okay, Victor, get the gate. And he was stunned. Well, no, I can't. Look, I've got my beautiful new Angora sweater. I can't open the gate in this. Don't snag that Angora sweater, Victor. But the professor wasn't giving up that easily. So give him a shovel and ask him to go to work. But that beautiful new sweater wasn't the only obstacle to hard labor. He had loafers. He didn't have shoes that he could work with, and uh, he was not really able to do that either. So far, so good, eh? 
I thought it was great. We had a real working farm. But Victor wasn't interested in working. So, safe to say, Victor didn't know much about farm labor. And it turns out he didn't know much about physics either. During this time, I'm getting to know him a little bit. And it's clear that he really has a very unorthodox training. Uh, Well, that's one word for it. He doesn't know basic physics in the way that I thought he would. So first time we sat down, I said, well, write Maxwell's equations. Peter, Maxwell's equations. Now, I've never heard of them. But then again, I'm not a physicist. I understand they're sort of a big deal in physics. Oh, yeah, they, they really are, Joe. I, I could tell you all about this. They are a set of coupled partial differential All right, equations. all right, all right, all right. You know as much about physics as I do, so you obviously got this from Wikipedia, for crying out loud. You caught me cheating, but, Joe, that's really not what's important here. What's important is that Professor Scully knows all about Maxwell's equations, and so does anyone who's serious about physics and knows what they're talking about. But Victor, it turns out, didn't. He tells the professor... Well, I write them as a 10-dimensional equation, and uh, that's not true. It's four dimensions. I said, well, that doesn't make sense. So he said, well, that's the way I write my Maxwell equations. And it was at that point that I knew, okay, this guy's a little bit more of a bullshitter than I realized. (laughs) Yeah, Victor was no physics prodigy. Surprise, surprise. The professor has been duped. But Victor wasn't done yet. And because Professor Scully is such a nice guy... He still wanted to help. Victor needed more permanent lodging. So the professor made a few calls. Enter another professor, Graham Flint, his wife Diane, and their three kids. Diane's got a chunk of family money. They had a beautiful big home up in the foothills of the Sandias outside of Albuquerque. You probably know enough about Victor by now to realize that the role they gave him was a role for which he was uniquely ill-suited. Wait for it. Victor uh, became the babysitter for the kids. Uh, say again? The babysitter for the kids. Oy, oy, oy. Big mistake. Victor uh, was not a, a good house guest. Huh, that's an understatement. Here comes the punchline. He sat the kids all right. Babysat Diane as well. Diane, mother of three, and almost twice Victor's age. Now, how to put this? Things moved pretty darn quickly. One minute, he was babysitting the kids. The next... Victor and Diane showed up in my office and announced that they were getting married. Yep. But this wasn't exactly a moment for champagne and speeches. I asked Victor if he would step out into the hall. I wanted to talk to Diane privately. I tried to talk her into not doing this, but she said, no, we're, we're going to do it. She obviously was under his spell. Bedazzled. And uh, they were gone by that summer. The two lovers headed for Boston and were married the following year 
1983. The next I heard, somehow or other, she got Victor into Harvard. Peter, did Diane really get Victor into Harvard? Well, it, it sounds cute, but the truth is we do not know. But he did get into Harvard, which is no small thing, right? Absolutely. So how did he pull it off? As everything with Victor, it involves a lot of ingenuity. To begin with, Victor enrolls in summer classes at the Harvard Extension School. Okay, Extension School, that sounds like uh, night school. It bears the Harvard name, but you don't get the classic Harvard degree or the Harvard status. But Victor, of course, that's exactly what he wants, the Harvard degree and the Harvard status. Exactly right. He sure does. And he's got a plan to get there. Why am I not surprised? (laughs) Okay, go on. So Victor embellishes his CV a lot. He claims to have won a bunch of academic prizes back home in Czechoslovakia, including the Math and Physics Olympiad. That all sounds actually pretty impressive, but you're saying he just made it all up. In a word, yes, because Victor's old school report cards from Czechoslovakia really aren't very impressive. He got lousy grades in nearly every subject. Every subject except for one, P.E. He was pretty good at that. Uh, Which, of course, explains how he got on the handball team. Yes. But the key thing is, Harvard, it seems, swallows Victor's story. He's in as a full-fledged undergrad with all of the status. Amazing. Somehow or other, Victor's done it. He's joined the elite. But... It's not long before he gets himself into trouble. It's rumored that his wife, Diane, is writing his essays for him. But she soon gets tired of that. No problem. Victor just copies someone else's. Before long, the college accuses him of plagiarism. The Harvard authorities, just like Professor Scully, realize something. This guy's... A little bit more of a bullshitter than I realized. (laughs) First time, they let it go. Second time, suspension. But somehow, Victor manages to sweet-talk Harvard. He explains that back home in Czechoslovakia, things were done a little differently. Victor racks up the longest disciplinary record Harvard has ever seen. But somehow, amazingly, he clings on. And he vows to turn over a new leaf. And if you believe that... Despite his somewhat blemished reputation, things are going Victor's way. He's not short of cash either. Although it's not his cash... It's Diane's. So Victor may have been wearing the sweaters, but uh, Diane was wearing the trousers. Anyway, he sure knows how to spend her dough. A brand new car, expensive meals. Diane says Victor burns through money. Like a drunken sailor. She later told one publication. He was an emotional terrorist. He would throw tantrums. He'd have affairs. And he'd take drugs. It all got too much for her. And I kicked him out. She divorced him in 1986. Smart woman. 
But the Czech charmer had come a long way. From jumping out of that train, or did he tunnel his way out, or did he fly over in an air balloon? Whatever, whatever. The guy had escaped his roots. He had escaped communism. Truly. He was making it in America, at Harvard. He was part of the elite. And what could be more elite than Harvard's Spee Club? That's S-P-E-E, Gentlemen's Club. Established 1850. Amir Farman Pharma was elected into the club the same year as Victor. It wasn't the only Harvard Gentlemen's Club, but... Uh, the Spee was more international and cosmopolitan and more fun. And uh, can you believe this one? We actually allowed women onto our premises for our parties and things. In the mid-80s, believe it or not, that really was cosmopolitan. It was all pretty exclusive. And Victor was the latest in an exalted line. John F. Kennedy was a member of the SPI. An oil painting of him uh, hung above the fireplace in our library. At first glance, Victor and Amir seemed like an odd couple. I was captain of the uh, polo team at Harvard, so you can imagine all the unfair advantages I had as a polo player. Well, I can't, but go on. You have to spend so much money on horses and grooms and trucks and trailers and places in the country that you rule out all the competition. Very few people can afford to play polo. Victor, of course, had none of that. His sport was rather more modest. Victor was a handball player. So, you know, he'd go into the field with his bare hands. And he had only his stamina, his skill, you know, his perseverance to count on. Victor was certainly singular. There was no one else at Harvard quite like him. He was someone that we talked about and laughed about, and he spoke with great facial expressions and gestures. Simple English, highly accented. Victor was soon notorious. There was another member of the SPI whose entire popularity was based on his imitations of Victor Kojeni, and he was asked often at lunch, to do his Victor imitations. Sounds like a gas. And here's another. With his main backer, a.k.a. his ex-wife, now out of the picture, Victor needs to start thinking about how to make his own cash. He begins hatching some pretty crazy schemes. He would say, Amir, shall I show you the rotating egg? The rotating egg was a sex toy. Victor showed Amir his design. He says, it rotate and vibrate at the same time. And then he'd say, you know who is biggest seller of sex toys in America? I'd say, no. He said, Johnson & Johnson, billion-dollar company. Amir, let's go buy billion-dollar company. So he was thinking big. Trust me on this. Johnson & Johnson has never made a sex toy. But put that aside, Victor was thinking big. That's the point. Although, Victor was a long way from turning his dreams into reality. In fact, he couldn't even pay his rent. And so he started living, or should we say squatting, at the Speed Club. 
camping in the club ruffled some feathers. I am sure it did. I remember opening the drinks cabinet in the library and some of Victor's Y fronts were uh, sort of stuffed behind the Courvoisier bottle. Whitey tidies in the liquor cabinet. Oh my goodness. One time, when everyone else was on vacation, Victor was on campus. And he'd made a copy of the steward's key. And uh, with that, he had keys to people's liquor cabinets. So he opened up the liquor cabinets and invited various random people, some townies. And, um, you know, they drank people's liquor and uh, trashed the club. To the August members of the SPI, could there be anything worse than allowing the townies to crash the club and raid the booze? The breach of trust with the copying of the keys, this was a bit of a shock and they decided to expel Victor from the club. It was a record, the first expulsion in the history of the SPI. But don't be fooled by all the parties and all the liquor, because Victor was way more than just a frat boy. He was very curious intellectually. I don't know if he took his homework seriously or if he wrote good essays. I just know that he was super bright. Super bright, but doing his own thing. He was in no rush to leave Harvard, having come from where he did. And he wanted to suck it dry for all the intellectual capital he could get. He had moved on from sex toys, but not from the idea of creating a billion-dollar company. That was still very much the game plan. Victor was always very driven in a worldly sense, for knowledge and for power and money. Especially for money. So now it's the late 80s. Victor's in his final year. Enter a new woman, Kendall Callahan. She's in her early 20s. At the time, she was working two jobs in and around the Harvard campus. One night... I had a night off. There was a bar and you'd get burgers and whatever. And I ordered poached salmon. And I sat next to somebody who asked me how my poached salmon was. And that was Victor. Ah, the meat cute. We talked and he walked me home that night. And I walked upstairs and I called my roommate. And I said to her, I just met the man I'm going to marry. Hi. I had no intention of ever getting married until I was 40. And so that certainly was not something I was looking for. But I knew. I knew that night. Now, we know Victor likes the finer things in life. Posh dinners and fast cars and the like. Was that how he wooed Kendall? Not exactly. I think a lot of the time was... A lot of the time was walking. Just walking. I remember walking. You're saying you and Victor went walking? Yes, walking. You know, life was never boring with him. Going on a good walk was just never boring. All right, enough, 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 enough. But when they did get bored of walking... Spending time at the Harvard Law Library and the Harvard Business Library, I loved. I was just hanging out with him, like you do. And he said, why don't you go do something useful? And he proceeded to get me books on organizational management... Oh, boy. 
now that I think of it, he would give me homework assignment, chapters in organizational management to read. (laughs) Whatever floats your boat. Anyhow, Kendall was smitten. But she had competition from the other woman in Victor's life. His mother. They would talk all the time. I mean, all the time. Um, And it was in German, so I couldn't understand it. Love me, love my mother. He was charming. He was brilliant. He was funny. He was a young man in a hurry. And Kendall was in his slipstream. And all of a sudden, he was moving to London. Wait, to London? He was moving to London, and I was like, I'm not going to miss life with this man. And, And so I went. And so she went. So here's where we are. It's now 1989. Victor, by some miracle, has graduated from Harvard. Okay, so it took him six years instead of four, but, you know, lots of people do that, and who's counting anyway? And even more miraculous, he has references. Like, good ones. A whole bunch of them. And these references, they're not just glowing, they are on fire. Fire. Victor must have mounted the ultimate charm offensive to get this lot. Mr. Kajani struck me as one of the most outstanding members of the class. The most promising students I have had the good fortune to teach. Victor's studies and creativity have no limits. It is very rare to find scientists of such abilities as Victor. Victor is an extremely diligent scholar. He possesses an unparalleled breadth and depth of scientific knowledge. Victor represents one of the few Renaissance men of universal knowledge and abilities. Victor possesses a charismatic personality. He's very social, polite, and self-confident, popular, and highly respected among fellow students. I recommend him highly. I recommend him with enthusiasm. I recommend him to you with uh, no reservations whatsoever. And then, Victor Kajni has asked me to write a recommendation for a possible future application to... There's this one. I came to know Mr. Kajni quite well, as he participated actively in the class. His comments reflected a keen intelligence, a good analytic ability, and a knowledge of business and economics as well as law. Peter, that's a nice recommendation, but it's not gushing or super special or anything. Nice words, but maybe a little vanilla. I am happy to recommend him. But, you know, that's not what mattered so much. Yours sincerely. Because that guy... Stephen Breyer. Stephen Breyer? At the time, he may have been just a Harvard Law professor, but later, he became a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Holy moly. So that Harvard degree really did pay off. It was super important. Not so much the degree, but the doors that opened and the big shots he met there. And not only that, but it turns out that the Harvard name would prove especially useful to Victor later on, as we shall soon discover. Anyhow, Victor has his Harvard degree. He's now 26. He's out in the world. He's in love, or at least Kendall's in love with him. But unlike his former wife, Diane, Kendall doesn't have money. In this relationship, Victor will need to pay for his own Angora sweaters. In short, Victor needs a job. 
1989, I was in New York, and a call came in from a chap called Victor Kajeni. Uh oh. Could he come for an interview? Michael Ladenberg. He was a big shot at a London investment bank, Fleming's. And he was in town for the sort of meetings big shots have. Are you ready to order, gentlemen? I took him to breakfast at the Plaza Hotel. It's one of the best breakfasts you can possibly get. I mean, their, their scrambled eggs and bacon and their eggs benedict are superb. <laughs> the eggs benedict? Certainly. Excellent choice, sir. He was very presentable. He was good looking and well built. I mean, he was a, he's a big man with a, a presence that goes with it. Considerable charm, enthusiasm, energy, and a, a level of self confidence you really wouldn't believe. Oh, I can believe it, all right. I really can. He presented himself as a very clever, in fact, a, a positive genius. I mean, he had no hesitation in describing himself as a genius. The best student that Harvard had ever had. Harvard University, founded 1636, producer of Nobel laureates, U.S. presidents, Captains of Industry, and Victor Cogeny. I should have known better, I suppose, but um, he certainly had a spiel which impressed us enormously. He was pretty convincing. I mean, I suppose it's fair to say that we were sort of bowled over by him. And we offered him a job on the spot. Ah. And we brought him to London. To Fleming's Investment Bank. It was an open-plan office. I'm afraid you've just missed it. Um, we sat him in a corner with a desk. Michael, a I suppose it's fair to say that we took him on purely opportunistically and the thought that he was a, a moneymaker. The assumption was that he was a decent chap who would uh, <laughs> put the firm's interest before his own. <laughs> I'm laughing too, pal. Whatever it was that we asked him to do, he simply never did it. Somebody else had to do it, or he got somebody else to do it, or he said, I haven't got time to do this, I'm working on something else, will you do it for me? And was getting on with, we then realized, we knew not what. Decent chap, you say? I mean, <laughs> buyer's remorse set in very quickly, I can tell you that. <laughs> but then, what was Victor really up to? We realized after a while that actually what he was doing was he was taking himself off to one of the many meeting rooms and having secret telephone conversations. Whatever he was doing, he was attaching Fleming's name to it. You know, one became very nervous. Under those circumstances, one would. One would indeed. With Victor, there always comes that moment when the other shoe drops. Okay, this guy's... A little bit more of a bullshitter than I realized. <laughs> After a few months, I mean, we, we, we got rid of him. Around this time, Kendall Callahan became Kendall Cogeny. It's Victor's second time around the block. And where else does a guy like Victor get remarried? Vegas, baby. And after that... Victor and I took a day and drove through the Grand Canyon. Now, Victor wasn't wearing his Angora sweater that day. No, even worse. He had this tan suede blazer and ascot 
and a button-down shirt in the middle of the Grand Canyon. A shirt and jacket in the desert? And with jeans. You know, only Victor would dress like that in the middle of the Grand Canyon. That's for sure. But despite his awful fashion sense, Kendall was convinced that Victor was for keeps. You know, he told me he wanted nine children. And I looked at him like, I don't think so. But a couple, of course. The fact that he said nine just got me to think, oh, wow, and and he's really into this. So I really thought, I'm in it for the long haul, right? To Kendall, it all felt good. I was mesmerized. And I was young and married and in love. And? I was pregnant. Ah. So Victor's still living in London. But now with no job and no money. But he's convinced that something will turn up. Because, after all, he's Victor. And something does turn up. The Ma is back, they chant. The wall has gone. For almost three decades, it's been the stark dividing line between East and West. Soon, it'll be little more than a pile of rubble. Tonight, men and women would dancing. You know, fate would have it that the wall came down. So this whole downfall of communism, I mean, even he couldn't have planned that. Peter, 1989 is like a big, big year. It's a massive year, Joe. Really momentous. There was wave upon wave of revolutions all across the Soviet empire. And and then, of course, there's the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then just a week after that, Victor's homeland, Czechoslovakia, tosses out the communists. Right. And of course, in all of these former Soviet countries that are getting rid of communism, this is like hitting the reset button. That's right. Everything is now up for grabs. And that is something that Victor immediately understands. Victor senses. No, he knows his luck is about to change. Home is calling. It starts with just a short trip back. But... Ten days later, we had actually moved from London and were living in Prague. Communism was opening into privatization. And anybody who was brilliant... There was your oyster of an opportunity. Jobless and practically penniless, Victor moves back to Prague a nobody. But he's about to pull off a truly audacious trick. A trick that will make him a somebody. A very, very rich somebody. There... In the city of his birth, Victor Kajani is about to be reborn.
You've been listening to The Pirate of Prague, an Apple original podcast produced by Blanchard House and hosted by me, Joe Nocera. The producer is Ben Crichton. The associate producer is Peter Elkind. The writers are Lawrence Grizel, Ben Crichton, and me, Joe Nocera. Music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nank Minnell, and Toby Matamon. Sound design and engineering by Vulcan Kiseltug. Our managing producer is Amika Shortino Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The executive producer and head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizel. Yeah.